You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 45. Wow. Getting closer to 50 every time. I know. You know what's funny? It's like every time we start an episode, we're like, oh, man, 27. Can you believe it? (laughs) We're so boring. That's all we got is to just talk about the number of the podcast. Right. Well, a couple of years from now, when we're on like episode 143, we're going to be like, you remember back when, when we did that first thing with Robert Scoville? That's hilarious. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joe Rogan's over here with 1500 episodes. Yeah. And everyone's two hours. Yeah. And also he has a hundred million dollars. <laughs> well, that's true. And his <laughs> podcasts actually get sponsored by people with a lot of money. That's true. Because people listen. Yeah. So for those of you who would like to sponsor the MXU podcast, you <laughs> how many, can just how email. How many times have we said this and no one has ever told us that they want to sponsor it? <laughs> no, but I think they should. We're, you know, we're getting kind of good at this. And I think the people who do listen to it really like it. So if you're out there, Daddy Warbucks, yeah. just email Jeff at MXU.rocks. And I'll hook you up with our sponsorship coordinator. Even and we can even if you have a muffler shop in Boise that you want us to talk about. Dude, I love the idea of just trying to promote a Boise-based muffler shop. You know what? We should find one. Jeff, and Jeff Poole, if you're listening right now, <laughs> go to your go to your local muffler shop down in Boise, and we could hook them up with some MXU swag that they could wear in their shop. You get 10% off Flowmasters for your 89 Mustang. (laughs) Are you impressed that I knew all that? Uh, I'm not surprised at all. I mean. Well, let's talk about gear. Gear. I've got gear on the brain. Okay. Especially after the interview we just did with Sean Moffat, which is coming up soon. Yeah, you guys are going to love that conversation. I got to figure out how to get Valhalla Reverb and use it live. That's what I just heard. Is there an IR available for Valhalla? I don't know. Somebody needs to make one. Here's what we should do. Podcast listeners, get on your little computers and figure out how to make an IR of the Valhalla Reverb plugin, and we'll send you a hat. Yes. Oh, speaking of hats, we got hats coming. I'm so excited about the new design for the hat. It's going to be great. We got uh, Branded Bills is making us a black hat with a leather patch. It'll be coming soon. We're going to sell those for the holidays. People have been asking. We shut the merch store down. It's coming back, baby. Yeah. And if you do the reverb plug-in for us, then it'll be the Valhalla days, and you can get a hat for free. Yeah, Valhalla days. (laughs) If that's not the title for the podcast. I think it should be. Valhalla days. That's funny. People be like, what is this? That is hilarious. Speaking of holidays. Yes, we got speaking a little, of holidays, we got indeed. a little something fun planned. So my working title, just mentally for me, is the MXU Secret Santa Surprise. Okay. But yeah. that, might not, <laughs> that might not be the actual title, because it sounds a little cheesy, but it's a good way for me to remember what we're doing. So we had an idea the other day. Since we're not meeting in person for any of our events, we thought, what would it look like if we could take MXU to the people? Meet them where they are. So, Lee, why don't you give a quick outline of what we have planned? Yes. This is exciting. So, the MXU Secret Shopper Santa Surprise Special. <laughs> if that's what, that, did I get that right? Spectacular. Spectacular. Sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, 
Jeff or I, or maybe another semi-famous person, we're going to show up at your church for a rehearsal or a Christmas service and not tell you and just tap you on the shoulder with a video camera and hang out with your team. And we're going to be listening to your mix and uh-huh. see how much you've learned from MXU now. Yeah. So if you're a subscriber <laughs> to MXU Teams, that is your official entry. You're already in. And so we're going to pick a couple churches and we're just going to get on an airplane or our truck and show up at your place and hang out with you and your team and and uh, public shame you. In fact, we've already chosen a few. And so if you are an MXU team subscriber, you may already be in the hopper. So be on the lookout for one of us to just show up randomly and encourage, assess, dissect, critique. Buy you some Little Caesars. <laughs> but yeah, Little Caesars for the whole team, yeah. courtesy of MXU. Did you know Little Caesars <laughs> now has half pepperoni pizza, half cheese sticks for seven bucks? <laughs> I only know this because my kids in middle school now and they need snacks for small group. So oh, there you go. You do little That's Caesars. Funny. So anyway, the MXU secret shopper Santa special is uh, it's coming your way. I'm excited about it. I really, I, you know, obviously it's going to be great to talk about mixing and to talk about, you know, teams and all that. But I just, I like the idea of getting the opportunity to be out and about and interact with people. Yeah. Even if your executive pastor is going to make me wear a mask, I'm, it's worth it because I've missed being around folks talking about mixing. Yeah, me too. Because talking about mixing over Zoom sucks. So something to look forward to. Yeah, that would be really awesome. Um, and we may have some other help. Like maybe we can talk Daniel into showing up at somebody's church that like just upgraded their lighting rig and he can come in and tell you about Gobos I love it. and Leekos. Scotty Allison right now is freaking out. He's our marketing guy. He's like, I'm going to have to come up with a name for this secret shopper special Santa surprise Saturdays. <laughs> yeah, I think we should just call it the MXU S to the fourth power. And you can just fill in your own S's um, to, to, to fit your application. I'd get fired if I filled those in. <laughs> anyway. Too many S words. Too many S words. So, Jeff, what have you been up to? How are you doing? Um, I've been good. I'm working on some mixes for a pseudo live recording that's happened. Um, it's uh, a client that's doing some sort of music video type thing. So I'm kind of producing the audio for that. So that's going to be fun. Nice. Um, trying to keep up with my daughter's volleyball season. So they're coming to an end this week. So they've got the semifinals tomorrow. And then if they win that match, they've got the finals um, on Friday. So potential middle school volleyball championship in my future. And we're very excited. That's awesome. How about you? You you got a new vehicle. I did. I got a new truck. That's been fun. So I just, I sleep in the garage now. Um, that's been good. <laughs> been mixing more. Oh, Aaron and I blew up a transformer. Did you see my Insta post about that at church? Yes. So was that from... Like from the street to the parking lot, was that the actual city's transformer? Like, what's the what was it? It was the city transformers, PG and E. Okay, so Pacific Gas okay. and Electric, who all yeah. Californians just love. Yeah, well, they start all the forest fires, right? They start all the forest fires, and but they turn your power out. 
and then they make everybody have electric vehicles in the next 10 years that you need to plug in that they turn your power out so that you can't charge your vehicles it's this whole thing i was mixing it was during sound check and the guy was sitting beside me aaron's at monitors and the guy was sitting beside me and he's in front of we use a, a meyer galileo for our dsp but we don't have meyer system mm-hmm. uh too long don't reply don't ask um and the pa took a dip like 5 db or so like and i look over at him and i was like what'd you do and he's like i didn't do anything and then a guy walks in from outside or aaron told me through talkback there's a transformer on fire outside like what oh no so we walk outside oh and the projectors went down like a bunch of stuff went down so we knew something with the power was up so we walk outside and the transformer is on fire outside apparently it was like it blew up not exploded but there was like a big pop and then it just caught on fire so fire department rolls but you up. didn't lose power to the whole building no it just took a dip it was like it just dipped wow it was like you know like a big voltage drop and everything just kind of uh-huh. and then it comes right back that's basically what it was like so wow. we uh went and got a little powered mackie an xlr cable and an sm58 and put at the bottom of the stage in the floor just in case during church it went down so that at least someone could preach and had a, a separate outlet run for it so we didn't know what wow. was going to happen but it was not us running the pa so hot that it blew the transformer i think that's what some people thought but that's not what happened no, it was old, reliable PG&E doing their job. Yes. I did hit like 104 that night. Probably felt great, though. Yeah, it's kind of loud. But you give the people what they want. Yeah, there was yeah. 700 people there. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a big room, though. Socially distanced. You yep. know, college football, right. 20,000 people. And the stadiums look empty. That's what's crazy. I know. I know. Like, you know, you take a place like Tennessee, you're welcome, yes. or some of these massive stadiums, and you put 20,000 people in them, it's like, they're just, you know, barely yeah. 20% capacity. Yeah. Ours looks the same. It's crazy. Even if 500 people in it, it's it's about the same. It's like you got a pocket of four people, and then six yeah. feet away, or eight feet away, there's another four people. It's weird, but it's good. I'm just glad we're able to do it. Yeah. So you do that based on chairs in between groups so like if a family's sitting together then they've got to leave three chairs or four chairs or how do you guys manage that i don't know how they do it i it's okay in the bleacher section every other row is covered up okay and then i think we're, we're only allowing a certain amount of people in the room and we just ask that they distance and everyone is got it and we ask that they wear a mask well that's why that's why we don't serve on the host team right I would just be like, come on in. <laughs> and they That's ask funny. people to wear a mask, but as soon as people get to their seat, they take their mask off. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I'm glad you guys are able to do stuff with people in the room. Yeah, me you too. Know, it's been it's fun been, to mix. It's been too long. It's been really fun yeah. to mix. But I do have the bug, so I've been wanting to mix a ton. And today's guest, I I just freaking went for it and asked him a ton of questions. I think I hogged up all the time, Jeff, so I'm sorry. No, it's okay. We are all big fans. And I know that a lot of people listening, even if they don't know the name and don't know who he is, they've been influenced by him because of the projects that he's worked on. And we're really excited to hear from our special guest today, Sean Moffat. So let's get right to it. Okay, everybody, we are so excited today to be joined by Sean Moffat, who is coming to us live from Nashville and uh, is uh just a mixing legend and recording legend. A lot of you guys know his work, even if you don't know it's him or not. 
So, um, Sean, thanks for being with us today. We're really excited to have you. Oh, man, it's great to be here. You're so welcome. Okay, Sean, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself, how you kind of got started and like some of the projects that people have heard that may they may not know that you were the you were the guy behind it. Okay. Um well uh well first off thanks guys like fan of your podcast and it's it's gonna be fun to do this. I'm been looking forward to this and um man I've been in Nashville for 10 plus years now. Um my wife uh courageously let me move here around 11 years ago with uh no work and very little uh of anything except just um a bit of a desire to try something different. I, I grew up in the tri-state area and I was, uh, I actually grew up working in New York city and, um, in the outskirts in Connecticut, like Southern Connecticut. Um, and it, it, there was a lot of great music going on, but it's just really hard to survive up there. Um, and so I spent some time visiting Nashville a few times and I just thought it would be a great little scene change. And, you know, my wife was on board, so we moved here and, um, it's been an amazing 10, I think it's almost 11 years now or 11 years in April. Um, but it's just been an incredible time, man. This city is a, a really special place. Um, I don't think there's any place like it in the world, actually, uh, like per talent per capita. I just don't think anywhere else has it. There's just so many talented people here. And, um, you know, the, I, I, I kind of, uh, came here to 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 be a mixer and and it just it, it worked out and uh so you said you you moved in with no like no prospects and no real agenda other than to to get connected and make it work so what was that first like how did you make those initial connections and how did that like what what does that story look like okay yeah i've told this story before so i had um i have a mutual friend of mine um named lamont heber who uh is from connecticut where i'm from and i ran into him one day we've known each other for years uh through different things and he's like and we hadn't seen each other in a long time and to make a long story short he's like i've i've been working with this guy named brent milligan um who's here in town he's a dear friend of mine now um and we're struggling with some mixes uh would you be interested in maybe uh mixing a couple of my songs and that was the first time i actually had any contact with anybody in nashville so uh that worked out that song ended up working out really great it was for a band called 10 shekel shirt way back in the day heck yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's actually a really great uh record and uh i ended up mixing a few on that song but more importantly i met this guy named brent milligan uh, Brent is a total legend, amazing, uh, you know, good at almost every instrument you can imagine, uh, amazing producer and even a better man. Uh, and so we became friends and he uh, started kicking me stuff uh, to work on uh, long distance and started to slowly prod me to maybe make a move to Nashville. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of what. I, that's kind of what like the you know kicked me into gear coming over here you know well brent is an amazing guy like you said he um for those of you who don't know brent um i worked with him he's uh produced a ton of stephen curtis chapman's music and as well as a lot of other music so anytime that i've been traveling with stephen brent has been on on the road playing bass in the band and he's just an incredible human great tennis player by the way, if you, for those of you who didn't know that, um, but that's not a bad, that's not a bad way to make your initial connection is, uh, somebody like Brent to introduce you to Nashville. Cause he's, uh, he's just such a great guy. And not to mention the fact that he's 
pretty darn well connected. Oh yeah. So in, in the funny story about Brent and you know, I mean, this is definitely uh, something we're sharing. Uh, I give a lot of credit to Brent because uh, he was very kind in the beginning when I was still in Connecticut, he would send me sessions that he would had already completed, had already been mixed, had already been mastered. And then he would every once in a while kick me sessions that were already done. And he would include a final mix and the master. Uh, and what I realized really quick in the beginning was as I aspired to, to be a better mixer and, and for my songs to kind of stack up to what I was hearing commercially, like I just wasn't getting good enough content to work on. Uh, and so mm. I, Brent, I kind of like expressed that to Brent one time and Brent was like, well, dude, why don't I just kick you some sessions that have already been mixed and just like work on those. Cause you know, it was great songs, great recordings. So for a couple of years in Connecticut, I would just kind of cut my teeth on these sessions that no one ever heard. No one ever heard the mixes, but for me personally, I would try to beat these released uh, songs and, and kind of in my head, I, I started to kind of feel like, Hey, I think what I'm doing here, like stacks up to what's going on, you know, in these finished products. And that was kind of gave me confidence to like move to Nashville and kind of try something. So Brent, uh, on so many levels, like I give so much credit to you just really mentoring me, like being a friend and encouraging me, but also just kind of giving me like this incredible gift to be able to work on stuff like on my own time to just to make sure I could stack up to whoever was doing it. That's amazing. That's really cool. Really thankful for that. <laughs> so Sean, you've mixed a ton of CCM worship and some country stuff. Um, what just throw out some of the projects you've worked on recently okay um i know that's like every day you're doing something new but like what are you working on lately well some stuff that i'm really excited about that's come out recently is uh, the need to breathe record um let's see uh some some new josh groban songs are coming out that i'm really excited about um i'm very excited about my boy mac brock's record coming out oh i love mac what a dude um, on the countryside, I'm elated about, um, I have a Kane Brown, Chris Young song coming out, uh, this month and, uh, the new Russell Dickerson records coming out, which I'm really excited about. Nice. Russ D. So I got a just side note because in case Russell ever hears this or tunes into the MXU podcast, the first time I met Russell was in like 2006, seven ish. He was one of the first guitar techs for Chris Tomlin. Yes. And he, <laughs> he traveled around anytime we did a fly date, he had this like nylon Puma duffel bag with a tuner, a set of strings and maybe a drum key in it. Like it was the most thrown together <laughs> setup ever. And our bass player, Jesse Reeves at the time, had nicknames for everybody. And so in Jesse's mind, Russell Dickerson correlated to Eric Dickerson, the running back for the Rams. Got it. Who was, who was number 29, which is like so, way back at this point. Yeah. Way back. So Russell Dickerson among our crew was known as 29. So when he finally got a Pelican to put all of his stuff in every time the, trailer got loaded that pelican had a big 29 on it because it was it belonged to russell dickerson so to see him going from <laughs> skinny jean guitar tech with a funky haircut who really 
didn't know a whole lot about being a tech to where he is now is just so much fun. I love his music and I love the fact that you're involved with it because uh, Lee and I both have um, young daughters who are into country music and those songs, it's like, man, they're so hooky and they're on in my house all the time. So next time you see Russell D, just tell him I said hi. Well, I'll, I'm going to make sure I'll make sure he listens that I'll tell him that like, maybe you will. But, you know, it's so funny. You talk about the Tomlin Russ thing. I mean, I'm sure both, you know, I mean, they just did it. They released a song together just recently, which is just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just so cool. So, yeah, that is a really great story. And, you know, I have so much to thank uh, to the Russ and, and Casey Brown in particular. Um, Casey Brown is the producer of Russ and um, and uh, Dan Huff and Russ did the um, uh, Dan Huff and Casey did the next record that's coming out here soon. But Casey and Russell made that record uh, in in an apartment in a bedroom. Almost all those big hits that he's had off his last record were done almost six years ago. Wow! So it's just unbelievable. His story. Uh, he's so gifted, and and his whole team is amazing. And Casey's he's such a fun guy too. He's just always smiling, always laughing. Just. Just great. That's cool. So what about in um, sort of CCM gospel world? The first time I met you, I think was at a, it was either Passion or North Point when I, I just had this image in my mind of you literally running around a venue with about a mile's worth of mic cable and about 12 pairs of audience mics trying to get stuff set up around the room to capture the audience for this live recording. And every time I saw you, you were just like pouring sweat and gasping for breath because you were just literally trying to capture every corner of this massive arena. And uh, I thought, man, there's a hardworking man right there. Props <laughs> well, to Sean. Well, the, well, you know, th those, uh, those events are fun. And usually, uh, you know, my life, my life is re rarely, uh, like relatively methodical. And so those live events are actually a nice little change to the norm, but you know, those, those sort of things, like, you know, when you're running miles of cables, like it's rare that every cable works and, you know, you never have enough time and everything's, you know, the stage is always running late. So those type of events, it's like, by the time, I think it's probably rare that we've ever had like all the room mics working by the first song of any event ever, <laughs> you know, That's funny. Uh, but you know that I love, love. Uh, you know, over the years, been able to, you know, being able to capture live worship events has been a real highlight for me. So, talk to me for a minute about that because your process is a little different than what I had seen previous so? to that. Well, I think just the amount of microphones, like the. So, talk about just what you're thinking about when you're, because a lot of our a lot of our guys who listen to this are you know, setting up crowd mics and audience mics for their broadcast mixes, or yeah. they're in a church, they're in a church that might have, you know, 500 to a thousand seats, but they're not, they're not thinking about necessarily trying to capture the amount of audience that you are. So I know, first of all, the audience is important in how you're thinking about mixing, Absolutely. especially for a live worship event. But in terms of just the amount of microphones, mic placement, like just talk through your process a little bit about what you're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, I'd love to, uh, over the years for a lot of these events, my partner in crime and these sort of things, uh, is a guy named Garrett Davis. And I don't know if you know who Garrett Davis is. Yeah. He now works yeah. at Capitol, 
But he taught me a ton about live recording. And Garrett has worked um, at Elevation um, for, you know, for multiple years. And, and I started way back in the day with Mac and Garrett working on these Elevation records. And so they kind of started to grow of this philosophy. And then I started coming along and getting called to capture these events. And I really liked what Garrett was doing over at Elevation and even way back on early. So I actually act, asked him to kind of partner with me on some other churches and we just kind of subscribed to the philosophy that especially like the, the biggest, in my opinion, in a worship, live worship capture, the crowd is actually more important than even the drums, in my opinion, uh, if, it's a, if it's a great crowd. Because when you get to the end stage of any record, the, uh, the number one feedback is, is like, I want to feel more crowd. I want to feel like it was like I was there that night. It doesn't feel like that. And so often I'll get that comment and then I'll look at my audience mics and there'll be like four audience mics. So Garrett and I, um, you know, I remember we've, we've done the dome at passion, you know, 70,000 people. Uh, we ended up doing 47 room mics on that. Oh my gosh. And, uh, <laughs> and the philosophy of that is, is that, you know, you just try to capture every ounce of the, the emotion of the room as possible. Cause that's the experience. Like, a worship record to me is just equally as amount about the people there that you know in the in the the experience as it is the actual music itself. Um, so rarely do we have forty seven or twelve or fourteen. Probably at that pass or at the the North Point event you saw me, we probably had fourteen or sixteen. Rarely do we use all those mics, but we like to have those options. And um, specifically with those mic placements, we use a, a lot of shotguns. And we place them underneath the PA as much as possible so that there's very little PA and there's just very focused sound to very like specific points in the audience. Um, so, and honestly, you know, I'm thankful that a lot of these worship events are multiple nights because we often change things after the first night once we actually see how the crowd is reacting and all these different things. But it, it is true, truly like a really fun thing and a, and, a, and a bit of a moving target, but it's it's a really fun thing to be a part of. I hope they come back, <laughs> you know? Okay, so that, that's all amazing. Go back to what you said about like the crowd being more important than even the drums. But I mean, the vocals obviously very important also, but, and then you also said, the number one thing you get feedback on from worship leaders, A&R guys, anything, it's the crowds for a live record. They always want more, right? In a way, they want it, they want it to feel like it was when they were there that evening. Rightfully so. I mean, and that's one of the biggest reasons I've argued. Like, if someone calls me to mix a live record, uh, I often recommend, like, hey, if there's any way I can be a part of it, I think it'd be really great, even if I'm not recording it, because... To me, it's all about knowing exactly what happened in that room that night, because whether they know it or not, they want to experience it like they experienced it that night. And if you have a lot of crowd options, like you're going to be able to give them what they want. I mean, there's been many times where it's like, I remember on that down course, like everybody was like screaming. I could barely even hear the PA. And it's like, well, you have two room mics and like one of the room mics, all I hear is like a guitar amp in it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, it's just, and 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 let me also say that drums are a very very close second as in importance, but uh, yeah. but you know, it, it, I, I say it was the most important thing more to make a point that I think that crowds often 
um, get overlooked, you know, and yeah. I, and I think that they're probably one of the most important things, if not the most important thing for a live record. I feel like I'm telling churches that right now too. Like when we're asked to give some feedback on like, Hey, check out our stream or check out our mix. I'm like, there's no audience mics Strive. or if there are, you can't hear the audience. Well, yeah. I mean, some churches don't have an audience right now, but some do. Right. And it's yeah. really important. So like I, I'm helping a church out in Tulsa right now and they basically bought an arena without an upper bowl. And we were talking about their mic package and I put, uh, how many did I put? I think 10 crowd mics on the list. Yeah. And some of the guys there were like, man, that's a lot. But now hearing you talk, I'm like, that actually might not be enough for an, a big room like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it's really interesting because again, you, there's really, what I've found is, especially when you're tracking, it's rare that you're in a really great monitoring situation when you're tracking a live record. It's, it's, it's often relatively rogue. And so that's another thing. It's like, it's really hard to critically listen on the capture and be like, man, are we really nailing like what's going on with, um, you know, the capture of the room? I, I, there's one instance I I've, I've worked with a, an amazing church, uh, out in uh, Chicago called Harvest. Yeah. Um, and uh, vertical, vertical worship. And we did something really cool with them where I actually flew out one or two times uh, prior to their live event. And we kind of set up room mics for their Sunday service, which was a pack, you know, the same amount of people. And we kind of test run it, ran it uh, multiple weekends prior to the actual event, you know, to kind of just suss out the room. So, I mean, there's all these different ways, but I mean, a, a good way to button it all up is, is like with crowds on a live capture, like you can't go wrong with as much options as you have channels for, because you're going to end up using a lot more than you think. I think I would th say, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, I actually have a, a list of stuff to talk about. I'm so excited about all this. And, <laughs> and I don't know if you know this, you, you probably, you will when I, once I say it, but you mixed our record, the thrive worship record. Oh, so amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So you and I talked a little bit uh, during that about some of the uh, mixed stuff. It wasn't a live record. It's a worship band, but it was a studio record. But one thing the A&R guy, uh, our good friend Adrian, like he he was going like um, less compression on the vocal. Check this, you know, look this Brick Frazier, check this Hillsong thing out. So I'm seeing a pattern of of that. Like I feel like a few years ago, it was like how tight can you squash that vocal super poppy up in front of your face? And with worship stuff now, it feels like it's got a little bit more movement to it. Am I wrong in that? Or are you seeing that too? Well, I think in music in general, I, I think the trend for a while, um, as computer audio started to get really better and better, engineers were able to get things really loud and really, really hyped uh, and, and, and super aggressive. And, that was awesome because actually they would sound that exact way on CDs. I mean, you would, you could yeah. put in the CD and it would be like, wow, that song is like really loud, really aggressive, really bright. And I think what's happened is, is like all the pumping and all these things like, uh, is getting really exposed in streaming. Um, and mm. you know, Spotify is well, more Spotify than Apple music, but Spotify definitely shines a light on aggressive mixing. Um, and it will actually attenuate the audio often. And, and, it, will, and it also uh, has an algorithm that, and if I'm wrong, I, I don't think I am, but it basically, it has an algorithm that is triggered by distortion. So wow. um, 
So I think a lot of us are really trying to get our mixes to a really exciting spot, but a really dynamic spot because it, it just manifests a lot better on the streaming platforms. So I think that that's kind of like a taste thing, but it's also a bit of like a um, wanting these records to have a timeless feel to them and and, and kind of not be a, a sonic timestamp of a of a time, you know? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, especially with worship music because you want, to have dynamic range that follows the emotional flow of the song and like with Hillsong or passion or elevation or whoever, if it's a, if there's a lot of ramping up and down that happens during the song, you know, you don't want the mastering or the mix compression to just clamp down on that so much that it all goes away because the emotion of the song needs to be conveyed. So to have dynamic range in your mix is just as important because of the emotional flow of the music. Absolutely. And I would, I would definitely say that out of all the genres that, you know, I get to work in, uh, you know, dynamic, as far as dynamics go, worship is, is all dynamics It's up, down, up, bring it down, like, and then crush to the end and then down again, you know? And it's like, yeah. so it, you're exactly right. You have, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. Um, but often the big sections of, of those songs uh, might not, get as loud as people want so that so that the you know the the, the quieter sections of the songs really shine you know what i'm saying so there you feel yeah. that movement you know so yeah that's cool i i feel like uh right now some of the best like like the stuff that's out commercially that you know is really winning is some of the best sounding stuff in a long time like you know i feel like computer audio is dialed in now um and people aren't afraid to release stuff that has a lot of dynamics and, and, you know, not necessarily like massively loud. And I just think that yeah. Sonics are just a lot better these days. I'm stoked for yeah. it. And I feel like we talked about this on our last podcast. So it, it kind of triggered us trying to get you was, I feel like a lot of the vocals on church streams were too quiet mm. and the band mix was just swallowing up all the way around it. And I'm like, man, people like turn the vocal off. If you go listen to country music, obviously, like a Russell Dickerson album, <laughs> I mean, that vocal is right up front. You can hear every single word. My nine year old daughter knows all the words. Like, that's really the point, right? Is for it's not for us mix engineers to go like, do you hear that snare bottom mic? Like, how dope is that? Right. It's it's we're telling a story, <laughs> and what and what's the what's the story we're trying to tell? Yeah. But for worship, it's like even more important. So I'm like, get that vocal up front. But how do you balance that with energy and emotion? And man, the drums are really kicking there. So I feel like it's a bit of a, a tightrope, but that vocal up front is really important, I feel. Yeah, well, worshiping Christian music and country music have one very, very like similar thing in common. And I think that's why from a mixing standpoint, they ham and egg with each other really well, is that... Uh, different than pop christian music worship music country it's a lyrics driven uh, driven genre it's it's 100 the information that's being told to the listener that is resonating in pop music you could be talking about something i mean very important often sometimes but also there could be a a, a huge song that literally someone's saying something completely ridiculous but yeah. the melody and the hook and everything is just so amazing that it's just a hit well you know mixing country music christian music worship it's it's if if the listener is not connecting with the lyric you're not doing your job so uh that's got to be the first and foremost sort of uh thing for me to to focus on so you that's know awesome that's cool yeah uh, okay let's go back to drums okay 
drums and live, it's so stinking important. And I have a question about we'll get to drums this will it'll lead right into it but about gain structure when we're recording for broadcast or we're printing into pro tools to send to someone to mix so what do you like to see if a church is going to do some recording talk about the gain structure well first off if you're making stems and jesse will be excited he's over here in the corner whatever you do do not normalize your stems (laughs) like uh that's the first thing uh but but Gain structure wise, what I like to do is I like to get to the loudest part of the song and I like to get my bus to hit at minus like, all right, this is going to get a little techie, but essentially I go to the loudest part of the song and I get my mix bus to hit minus 10 RMS on the loudest part of the song. And I don't like adding more than three dB of limiting level. So I adjust my faders so that if I'm adding 3 dB of limiting and a little bit of compression at the loudest part of the song, I'm hitting minus 10 RMS. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're talking about when you fly in stems into your template. Right. So when when you were asking about drums and gain structure. Yeah. To me, fundamentally, like a, 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 like a, the most important part of a foundation of a really solid mix is, in fact, the gain structure. And even yeah. within the Pro Tools or whatever DAW you're working in, there is 100% a sweet spot within Pro Tools that mm-hmm. it just sounds better than if you're pushing it. You know, it, you know, it, so anyway, you can get away with it a little bit more in, in the DAW environment. But so what I try to do is I get a static mix going with a song. And the first thing I do is address the gain structure and make sure that in the loudest part of the song, whether it be the bridge or the last chorus or whatever, or um, that if I'm adding 3dB of my own limiting level yep. and just a little bit of compression, like I get my faders to reach minus 10, M- or, uh, minus 10 RMS on the loudest part of the song. And then I know that my gain structure is right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that's yeah, so that that's your great. bus processing is working correctly. Yeah, exactly. So, right? you know, I'll, I'll have songs coming in that sound really good, but for some reason, like the bottom end doesn't have like a massive extension that I want or something. And I'll look and I'll be like, oh, well, they're getting like 14 dB of gain out of limiting and their faders are way down. Like, yeah. it, that's just like, that's like driving that's just like driving an AMG Mercedes in like second gear the whole time. Like, you know, essentially if you're not utilizing the full capacity of the depth of, of your doll, you know, and you're just adding level afterwards, you're not getting that full bit rate and that full depth. So gain structure is really important. So what about input channel gain? If, if somebody's thinking, okay, how am I actually recording this in the first place? Cause I get the output bus gain or the, aux bus gain but what about like what are you hoping to see in terms of level on input channels like right around zero you know like you know it and it's funny like quiet signal like a lot of people are like well i was trying to be really really careful and so i kept it really quiet that can be just as damaging as bake signal right because to your point about bit depth if you're not if you're not digging in and getting all those bits you're you're having a lower resolution recording in the first place and and noise floor Cause you're going to have to yeah, bring yeah. up that level and compress it or whatever. And there's going to be so much more room noise that you're going to bring up because it's such a such quiet signal. But, um, yeah. So basically right around zero, uh, or a little bit below, you know, and, and 
nothing nothing in the red if possible but i mean red's not gonna kill you if it's not consistent but you know just generally viewing it like if you're trying to get all your faders like right around zero talk about how important to you is the actual preamp in recording live so most people set up is i've got a digico console here and we're taken straight off of these pre's and then that's what's going into Pro Tools. So do you actually notice a big difference with live consoles these days? No. Because I feel like they're all pretty good and people are like, oh, the SSL's got the best preamp. Well, I, I mean, maybe it does. I, I'm not sure. So what's your experience been like with that? Well, uh, like, you know, if you had asked this question to me three years ago, I would have been like, if you really want a great sounding live record and you need an analog split, you need like, let me bring in my pre's, let me bring in like all these different things. Uh, but now with modern technology, with like, uh, with um, Maddie and all these different, you know, Dante and like all these different interfaces, yeah. it's just so powerful. And so often what people need to realize is, and a, a mastering engineer, a really great friend of mine named Dave McNair told me this a long time ago, and it made so much sense because uh, we were talking about in-the-box mixing versus out-of-the-box mixing. And he was like, Sean, if you even have a bad cable in your analog path when you leave that computer, it is not worth the conversion to, like, if you don't even have, like, you know, like amazing grade a quality cabling in your rig it's not worth converting your audio and what i've learned is is as conversion and software has gotten better and better it very often is not worth the sonic quality to leave a computer or to leave a, a, a live broadcast console so being able to go from a live broadcast console directly into like some sort of doll through uh, dante actually most of the time sounds a lot better because typically you have some weird snake that's running 600 feet like yeah. into like a closet that has bad power and two of your pre's are down it's like it, but that's that change in my opinion that's change has just recently happened over the last five or six years you know where it's yeah. like you're getting that great sounding digital it's so i actually prefer it i don't think it's worth analog anything for live environments because the biggest thing for me on a live envir environment is stability, you know, uh, and, and come though, on, preach it, baby. You're, you're hopping on my soapbox right now. <laughs> right. And it's like, I mean, if you go, if you go like some, if you go, uh, you know, Dante into like Reaper, even like, you know, I guarantee you, like if the whole power fell off in the whole building and like you had power to your laptop, Reaper would still be going like, it's unbelievable. It's like, so you know, I'm I'm just into very like simple transfer and then deal with it in post. You know, so to the point about um, direct to the recording, either through Dante or straight off the console, SoundGrid, whatever the yeah. whatever the conversion is. Um, to me, it makes you know as the technology for that has improved. One thing that it has revealed though is how important mic placement and source is i mean we've talked about that a lot around here totally but, you know the capture is getting better but it also reveals some flaws in the playing or the tuning of the drums or the mic placement so you know talk for a minute just about your experience with that how important that is any tips that you would have for encouraging guys to get that right honestly i think mic placement is very important but I think something that's very much overlooked 
on a live recording is not enough attention being um, given to the, perf- the the players or the worshipers um, in ear mixes. Huh. Uh, so often in a live record setting, like everything is just going nuts. And everybody's like, I don't even, I don't even see signal here. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, you, everything's in red and you have, and then, you know, some of the best recordings that I've ever been a part of has, has been players who have said like, it sounded amazing up there. Cause they're, you're just going to get a much better inspired performance and a tight performance. And so much of like that capture in the live thing is tightness. And so I really try to like, you know, if I ever speak into any of the pre-production thing, I always try to encourage everybody to allocate way more time for their, for the, you know, the mixes of the actual players. And, you know, because if they're not locked in together, I mean, nothing's going to lock, but moving on, as far as mic placement goes, um, I do definitely hear a lot of phase issues like in drums and, um, and that's just the experience. And that's also having a great monitoring environment to hear phase issues, you know? And so very often mm-hmm. uh, you, you just not be able to catch that in a pair of headphones in an arena or in like a back closet somewhere. But, um, and also simplicity. I think that when uh, a live recording, I would much rather have like one solid mic than like a ribbon, you know, like a FET and a, you know, uh, a 57 it's like i think that simplicity and just like one solid option for a source like on you know instruments and stuff is is the way to go keeping everything streamlined and simple so that everybody can just focus on actually performing you know yeah that makes perfect sense that's very cool um i think it's amazing that you said one of the most important things about capturing worship is that the band has great inner mixes that's i've never thought of it that way it's so true. Well, think, I mean, you're a drummer, right? And you're the anchor of this whole freaking thing. And like, you can't hear your bass player because, yeah. because like some dingbat ran a bad XLR and it took 45 minutes to like get like signal to like <laughs> s- some like Moog synth that they use on one song, you know? And now yeah. the drum, and now the drummer can't hear anything where it, you know, we literally could have taken the, the, the pre-profile and put it into the session afterwards. And the drummer, you know, but the drummer has like a crap mix for the weekend, you know? And it's, uh, I don't know. It's just those little things that it's more like the, the, the ones that have gone the best. I've, I've kind of like, all right, so what happened on those things that, uh, that made it the best and, and, and it's an exorbitant amount of time, like prior, uh, is very very important for live recording um you know or capturing rehearsals as much as possible is a really really important thing to make a great recording um you know and just uh also another thing that we've done in the past um that's actually been really interesting is we've often after the recording all right well anyway so so many of these live worship songs uh, are recorded to Ableton tracks. And so very often these songs, uh, their, their format and structure stay exactly the same. Uh, there was one event that uh, a couple years back where we had, uh, unfortunately, not it wasn't a technical issue. It was more of a sort of performance issue where the drums actually didn't actually work out for the evening, mm-hmm. um, which is a total debacle when you think about... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a live. Well, worship. even th- that's getting picked up in the crowd mics too. Yes. 
So um, we got really discouraged. Uh, but what we realized late in one evening is, is that we actually had on the production team an incredible drummer um, who was available and uh, you know was there. And essentially, we realized that the whole con- the whole show was mapped out on Ableton. So every hit was in in this particular scenario was um, mapped out. So we decided that after the night of the last recording, we would go back in. We called the front of house engineer and we kept the truck up there. We had a truck on that particular time. And we went in and recut the whole record, blasting through the PA with 14 room mics capturing it through a Neve console and just clean drums through the PA in a, in a big like open space. And it ended up being one of the best sounding live records and because of that sort of accent that we had the first time that's something that i've done with a lot of churches afterwards is is we'll do a we'll do a pass of just a drummer playing the whole uh show if it is an apleton thing it's not a free-flowing thing if it's like an apleton thing i'll get i'll i'll take a pass of the drummer playing the whole show and capture all the room mics all the drums and everything isolated and often i use those so instead of doing overdubs in the studio you're actually doing overdubs in the room itself with the same crowd mics with the same Correct. environment and that's brilliant that's that's a really good idea yeah but you have a hundred percent isolation of all the right. drums and the crowd um, and it takes a great player because believe it or not, if you have a great player, um, it, it works with the rooms. So you can use the rooms from the night and then you can use the drums and the rooms isolated with just yeah. drums and you can compress the the rooms completely different than you would if there was a bunch of guitar amps and vocals and all these other things in there. Yeah. Um, and that's so, like take that ocean way like exactly. check this 2000 seat room <laughs> yeah and i got you know that's oh man that's such a good idea yeah i've actually encouraged some friends to like make records that way like dude you should just you know like find the church that has a great pa like bring in a rig and just cut your drums through a pa in the church because it, i can't tell you when it's isolated and it's a good sounding room and you have a great you know capture it's there's nothing like it that is such a good idea <laughs> That's really cool. Okay, um, I want to talk about vocal effects on live recordings. So the front of house guy's favorite toy is that delay. You know, they're throwing delays just all the time, you know. But you don't hear that on live records, thank God, because I would probably turn them off hearing all that delay. But uh, reverb in a live record with tons of room mics, what do you end up doing? What I do on a live record is I try to mute all the room mics on everything to start and I mix it like a studio record. And then I start, uh, applying my own effects to get it to sound in my head. Like I think it should without any room mics. And then are you approaching that? Like it's a studio album. Are you trying to get the vocal to sound live and big and swimmy? I'm trying to recreate a live feel without any room. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, and so, I try to get like reverb and, and spaces to trail off like, like it would in, in that sort of environment, you know? And then once I get it feeling really good, I'll bring up the room mics and then I'll, and, and kind of push them up into it. And usually it's just perfect. What, what, what I find is, is if you mix with the room mics in, you start making choices that 
that if the client for some reason says, oh, there's way too much room mics, if you bring those room mics down and you made all these choices, the mix kind of folds. Mm -hmm. And so I try to create a mix that like doesn't need any room mics. And then, and then the room mics are just the extra sort of like gas that makes it, puts it over the top. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. So what's your, that's very cool. Let's geek out on gear for a minute. Like favorite type of vocal reverb on a live record. Valhalla reverb, my favorite vocal reverb period. Why did you have to say one that I can't use live? <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't. Okay. Um, Everyone says that. It's like Valhalla. And well, it's, it's cheap just, too, it's right? Just, yeah, but it's like, it's the parameters within the plugin. It's the the cost of it. And it's just like the decay is really good. Yeah. And it's just way more versatile than a lot of other reverbs. Um, all right. So like a waves reverb um, or... Is any or even like stuff that I could get an IR for, like a Bricasti or Lexicon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I have a um, you, like you know some of the IRL reverbs and stuff that yeah. Waves use that are really cool. That like some of those things in the stock that come with the you know the stock setting of that are really cool. Um, all, a plugin called Altiverb. I don't know if you've heard of Altiverb. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Altiverb is another great uh plugin that I love. Um, not a big Waves plug-in uh reverb guy but that's not because that's just the tasting it's not a anything uh right or wrong which is yeah um but yeah alter verb um i mean i actually like uh the air verbs that come with digidesign you know i would come with uh pro tools avid um yep. they have a lot of cool reverbs i mean um, that old d verb is cool yeah yeah no absolutely yeah it definitely has a sound and it has like great sort of pre-delay and on it and everything else so um yeah i love that reverb how about drum verb on a live record so i end with reverb on drums i actually rarely use reverb per se i actually most of the time use like room verbs yeah uh because uh, i just like i think it just naturally decays a little bit like it would in real life like with drums but um vahala room of course uh I love that plugin. I mean, it's on all the drums on my, like almost every day. Uh, I'm trying to think what I use air a lot. Okay. Yeah. EMT. Yeah. Uh, the UAD EMT um, yeah. is really cool. Uh, oh, and then um, all that ocean wave stuff, the UAD ocean wave stuff is really cool. Gosh, that thing is voodoo. Yes. And there, okay. And here's another one. There is a very, 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 very cool plugin called dream verb made by UAD. Yeah. That is really powerful and is a lot on a lot of worship worship songs people hear. So awesome! That's I'm writing cool. all this down. Yeah. Yeah. How, how about parallel compression on live records? Are you using that a ton? I don't really use a lot of parallel compression. Period. Like nice. Uh, but not hardly ever on on live records. Yeah, awesome. I'm like with live records. I'm trying to like get as much, get away with as much as possible without using much compression because it's like as as we were talking about either earlier it's like tracks need to breathe and uh usually when you're compressing live stuff you're bringing up stuff you want you don't want to hear and you're trying to like right yeah they're called symbols <laughs> right exactly <laughs> right <laughs> so but back to your point about gain structure i think if you get the gain structure right especially on your output bus yes you can get away with less compression because you're you're letting the music breathe, but it's totally. not getting out of control because your RMS level is staying right where you want it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and minus ten is actually a really great 
for all you geeks out there that are like mixing, I, I find that if you get, if you're, if you're able to get away with not having a super loud mix for the client to approve it, I think minus 10 is a great place to shoot for, uh, for the loudest part of your songs in a mix in the mixing stage, because it's loud enough to, to compete with stuff commercially, like from an AB perspective, but it's also leaving around 2DB of work for the mastering engineer to be able to push it really hard if he wants to, or just push it a little bit. But, um, anyway, so that's just something I've learned and, and that's, um, come from, I I actually reached out to a bunch of mastering engineers and I said, in a perfect world, where do you want my mix to sit RMS wise? And believe it or not, the majority of them said around minus 10 or minus nine on RMS. Most mastering guys don't want a super, super quiet. They want a Mm. good loud mix that they can make louder and EQ properly and everything. So minus 10 is like a really great sweet spot in a perfect world. You know, a, a great, mix that has limiting on it that's sitting around minus 10 minus 9 in this day and age i think that that would be you know mastering engi- engineers would love that you know yep cool well sean thanks so much for doing this man i could go on for another hour but we know you got gold records to mix so uh <laughs> yeah this has been awesome the um yeah well you're, you're so welcome guys it was really fun talking and i appreciate it and uh thanks for having me i'm totally honored all right. Well, that was awesome. Um, I used a uh, lead number two pencil and a sheet of uh, school paper for my children, and I took notes. Altiverb, air, dream verb, Valhalla. I got to figure out how to make all those. Or like we said before, somebody wants to go make some IRs, we'll give you a hat. So $25. The new hats are really cool, too. You're not going to want to miss a new hat. They are cool. I don't, you know, have you, have you messed with the UAD stuff very much? Well, so, uh, transformation church where I'm helping them build their console package and we threw in a UAD rig with one of them. So I'm excited to use that. So it'll have waves and UAD. And what I'm thinking right now is inputs, waves, outputs, UAD, but I want to try some of these verbs. Yeah. The reverbs are really great. I, I haven't messed with it much, honestly, because obviously you guys know I'm a longtime Waves user and I love Waves. Um, and the UAD stuff, personally for me, was just always cost prohibitive. I just can't. Yeah. I can't afford the the hardware. It's very expensive. But but guys that I know who've used it love it, and so I'm I'm real. I know they make a great product, and I'm I'm real curious to hear what you think of the transformation setup because it it might be worth exploring. Yeah. And then, you know, IRs, I feel like people overlook that. It's like, well, I yeah. don't have a lexicon. Well, the IR you plugin. You kind of do. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a hundred bucks for the IR plugin. Yeah. It's just finding good IRs. Right. Because it's not just about the fact that there's an IR out there somewhere, but it actually is the way it's captured. Yes. So it needs to be an impulse response that is recorded well. And, yep. but there are, there are a ton of libraries out there of really great spaces. And yeah. even like the IR, uh, the very first version of Waves IR that was for post-production and mixing, you know, their their preset library um, had, you know, these cathedrals and auditoriums from all over the world. They sound amazing. And it's yeah, just, totally. you know, it, it's cool. So, 
you know, like the we've gotten a hold of the Bercasti stuff that's really well done. Yep. I know that there's uh, some two two four stuff that's out there, the lexica other lexicon stuff. Um, so it's definitely worth. It's a great way to waste a lot of time. So yeah. if you're sitting around without much to do, and you have Pro Tools or another DAW that you can insert this IR plugin on. You could go down a bunch of rabbit holes just listening to reverbs. It's yeah. pretty cool. Just get the demos of all these plugins. You got one week to make the IR. <laughs> that's right. Gosh, that's such a good idea. S- somebody's going to email us with a Valhalla IR, and I'm going to be so excited. Oh, it'd be awesome. And there's different ones in Valhalla. So we need the room, the plate. We need all that. Yeah. So yeah, all of it. I'm going to need the plate dialed up to about three and a half seconds, please. Yeah, and the room for drums. Yeah, and give me that one about two starting seconds. Point. Yeah. Yeah. That's Get awesome. the vocal and the drums. We'll be good to go. Dude, how about Sean's tip about re-tracking live drums? Turn the PA on and put mics around the room. How That is so dope. Well, for everybody who's toyed with the idea of doing a live recording and then replacing via overdubs later, it's like, don't go to a studio. Make your room with your PA the studio. Yeah. And then you have an ISOed recording of each of the drums in the room. I mean, it's brilliant. It is. I'm calling Corbin as soon as we finish here and tell him, like, bro, we have to try this. Yeah. And more crowd mics. Everyone needs to buy more crowd mics. We don't often tell people to go spend money. But if you're only got two shotgun mics underneath your PA, it's not enough. You got a 500-seat yeah. room. Try four crowd mics. Try six. Try eight pairs. By the way, you need to keep those in stereo. Yeah. You know what? I want to do an episode on. I'm sorry, I'm just rambling here, but um, the new AirPod Pros. Have you seen they have the? Um, they can simulate surround. I have seen that. So what does that mean for us? The new iPhone 12 gets announced yesterday. It's got um, the, it, the new one is the first one that videos in what was the format? Is it Dolby something? We've got that going on, and then my buddy got a Tesla Model 3, and okay. it has surround in it, so you can listen in stereo, and it sounds like a normal car stereo, but then you hit surround, and it, it everything just kind of wigs out. It's just like this spatial thing happening. I've always thought that the car would be the perfect environment to experiment with surround. Like when 5.1 when five first came out, I thought, why isn't this in every car? Because you've got front left right rear left right and you could add a sub and have a great surround experience in a car i don't know why that just isn't the default for all cars but that's very cool and then you've got your oculus which is a whole new experience yes i got it yesterday we need uh, to do mxu oculus videos i know i'm dead serious about this like doing something in vr or at least 360 like how cool would a training video be at front of house in 360 Okay, so for you guys who are at home working on the MXU IR recordings, we need you to also write some code for us for the Oculus MXU yes. Now video uh, delivery system. Yep, YouTube 360 could be could be the way we do that. What if during the Christmas shows, I wear a 360 camera at the console so people can look in 360 like what I'm mixing? That'd be cool. That would be cool. Let's do that too with our secret shopper santa <laughs> surprise strawberry pie oh man it's gonna be spectacular well this has been fun 
It has been. As always, I appreciate you. Guys, thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you on the socials. Uh, Make sure to give us a like and a review and a shout out uh, about the podcast on your social media channels. And for you MXU team subscribers, be on the lookout because we might be knocking on your door a month from now to come and spy on you. So we're excited about that. All right. We'll see you later, Jeff. Take care, buddy.